Hello, and once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for match 11 of our sports bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1984's The Karate Kid, as well as 2007's Blades of Glory. I feel like this is one of the more one-sided bouts. Yeah, I never like these one-sided matches. I mean, there's only so much we could do to make them interesting, but the conclusion is pretty much always foregone. Very rarely do these very one-sided matchups have a upset. Yeah, and we'll do what we can, but I think a lot of that's just going to be like, well, here's why one of these films did things better than the other one did. Yeah. But I mean, I think finding things to say about the one that was maybe less strong that are still good and positive is worthy endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I like both of these films. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of my appreciation for Blades of Glory comes from the nostalgia of having watched it right around the time it came out. Sure. And being an edgy teenager. No, but I also have a weird fondness for Blades of Glory that we can get into. But no, no, I get it. This is pretty one-sided. But I think part of that is because Karate Kid is one of those quintessential films. And Blades of Glory had its place in history and time. (laughs) Speaking of places in history and time, how did the Karate Kid become? Well, to understand what led to the Karate Kid, first we have to understand karate and Asian martial arts in the United States. Now, Asian martial arts have existed in the United States for as long as there have been Asian people. However, they were not terribly well known outside of those insular immigrant communities. Until about 1946 or so, pretty much right after World War II, we start to see veterans and military folks who'd been stationed in the Pacific and Japan after the war come back with knowledge of karate. And especially in Hawaii, where there have also been a number of Japanese expats, karate slowly got to be taught to people outside of Japan. But it didn't really start taking off until Americans began to learn it to the extent that they could go on and teach others and then spread it across the entire United States. So most of the spread of karate is due to a bunch of American white people in the United States. And that kind of happens throughout the 50s and 60s. And in the 60s and 70s, you start to see lots of dojus crop up all across the United States. And that kind of coincides with The other thing that led to The Karate Kid is kung fu action movies. So back in the early 70s, Hong Kong had a huge boom in martial arts cinema. This is what popularized Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, the Shaw Brothers. All of it has to do with Hong Kong cinema in the early 70s through the late 70s. Specifically, one picture is very important. Enter the Dragon. So Enter the Dragon was a combined effort between American and Hong Kong filmmakers, and it starred Bruce Lee as well as Chuck Norris. And it was one of the first times where Hollywood was embracing the martial arts style of film that was coming out of Hong Kong because it had gotten really popular stateside because what would happen is television stations to fill time during like the middle of the day for cheap, they licensed and dubbed over these movies. Mm-hmm. That started and then Enter the Dragon hit and it was just a huge boom. You see Hong Kong doubling down on making these movies. You see American film companies getting involved and casting talent from Hong Kong or casting Americans. And this goes on for a while. In fact, you can kind of trace this era of Hong Kong cinema 
and kind of tie it into the 80s action hero because that's kind of what it evolved into. You go from kung fu movies to like gritty cop procedurals into some of the more like 80s ultraviolence. Actually, if you take a look at Chuck Norris's filmography, you can kind of slowly see the progression. Right. From people like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan into people like Schwarzenegger and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal. And so how the Karate Kid kind of ties into all this. Karate Kid was kind of one of the last hurrahs of of the like wholesome martial arts film to, in a lot of ways. To give you an idea of some of the other martial arts film that were coming out in 84, we have Ninja 3, which is about a woman who is possessed by the vengeful spirit of a ninja who is seeking revenge on the police who killed them. Cool. And then, on the other hand, you have a Jackie Chan film by the name of Wheels on Meals. Uh, he plays someone who delivers for a food truck. So you kind of have the, like, this very gory, gritty, B-movie martial arts stuff. And you have the martial arts action comedy that Jackie Chan pretty much perfected by that point. Right. And then you have The Karate Kid, which is this... Very quintessential sports movie, but it just happens to be karate, which because of the huge fad in the 70s was gaining popularity as an actual competitive sport in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it managed to kind of double dip into both sports fans and martial arts fans. Yes. It also doesn't hurt that Ralph Macchio became this huge teen idol pairing on like bunch of teen magazines like Seventeen and Tiger Beat. So you have lots and lots of different potential audiences who are gravitating towards this film. And that you have a kind of teen heartthrob means you can get a lot more women into the theater, but also that means that you got women who are seeing it for one reason, men who are seeing it for another reason. So it can become a either a couple thing or a family thing, which is a really good thing. If a, a film can like break into that like coveted family market. Yeah. Ignoring all the queers. Unfortunately, the 80s. Yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of the cultural zeitgeist that led to what we now know as the Karate Kid. Mm. While it is pretty late in the game as far as martial arts movies go, this thing is still a phenomenon. It spawned, let's see, three film sequels, a film reboot starring Jackie Chan, and now a YouTube premium series. Mm. So, thing has legs. Oh, yeah. So, let's go ahead and get into the actual meat of the film. Okay. I do want to kind of start at the beginning of the film. So, ignoring the opening credits and that montage that we really don't need, the apartment move-in scene seems very real. It feels like it could have happened to anyone. It feels very authentic, and I think that helps set expectations for what Daniel's going to be going through. You see him, you know, make these friends, get invited to this party and build everything up and be able to actually acclimate, which he was initially afraid of. And then at that beach party, everything comes crashing down. You sure pick cool people to be friends with, Freddy. Where'd you find this guy? Come on, let's go. And those opening scenes make you like this character and his mom a lot. And I think that really helps because when things come crashing down, it's not just, oh, that's unfortunate. It's just, it's more, oh, this is happening to this friend that I have now made. Mm -hmm. We talked last time about how you could kind of start it once they arrive. You don't need anything before that. I think you need to keep in the scene where Daniel and his mom have to, like, push the car to get it going. Push, Daniel! Push! Give it all you got, kid! Come on, push! I think that is just a great little encapsulation of the economic stress they're under, but also how their relationship works. How they kind of lean on each other and support each other through it. And... 
if you open with that scene, even if it's like a, a slower version of that scene while the credits roll, that would have been enough to just tell me everything I need to know about this character. And then once he moves in, everything I need to know about his, his uh, setting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like these are all very organic things that feel real and that they feel relatable and are also a lot of different inputs and stimuli that help us to see different parts of Daniel's personality, both mm-hmm. him as a sort of brash young man when he's picking the door open, but also as someone with a really tender, tender heart when he's petting the dog. A literal pet the dog moment. Mm-hmm. That interplay of this brash anger versus being an actually good person under it is the backbone of the film, and it's good that it gives us that in a few different angles so we can get that foreshadowed pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of juxtaposition, um, I think I noticed this time watching through was how a lot of Mr. Miyagi's spaces are dark, but not like too dark. They're not underlit, but they're not bright the way that the Cobra Kai dojo is. And to a certain extent, the school um, are. They're bright in a way that feels harsh and crisp, as opposed to this much more natural and gentle spaces for uh, Miyagi's workshop, Miyagi's home, even Daniel's house to a certain extent, yeah. which I think is a really good variation. This uh, this idea of softness as opposed to intense strength that takes the themes of the film makes them, like, puts them right on the screen. Yeah. It also plays into a little bit of the class and the issues that that causes between Allie and Daniel and Johnny and Daniel having this very bright and white settings for the country club, the school, Johnny's dojo, and contrasting that with the much more gentle, but much more humble settings of the LaRusso apartment, Mr. Miyagi's workshop, as well as Mr. Miyagi's home. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I think that works really well about Karate Kid is you have a lot of scenes that are doing a lot of things at once. It's not, the scenes aren't just about this, or if they are, they're also using these other themes to build what's going on. How the light plays into the socioeconomics and also the philosophy the characters are learning and also creating visual variants for these different scenes. Mm. I also really like how well Johnny is used. For a vast chunk of the film, Johnny doesn't have a whole lot of lines, but there's this omnipresence that threatens Daniel. I think one of the best scenes of this is when Daniel is hanging out at the Chinese restaurant that his mom's working out, notices the dojo across the street, goes to check on it because like, oh, I did karate at the Y, I'll check this out. And he goes in and then he sees Johnny at the front of the class and their eyes meet and he just gives this evil smirk. Mm-hmm. He's such a good bully. Mm-hmm. Even when Daniel is trying to escape or solve his issues, Johnny is always there to impede him. It just used so well throughout the film. I generally agree, although I think almost every scene between Daniel and Allie tends to play out they're having a good time then Johnny shows up. I would have appreciated a few more where they just get to be happy together without this like looming threat. It wound up being just a tad repetitive. Mm-hmm. It's not really unrealistic. They seem to have a relatively small town setup, even though it's you know, a fairly big place. But the way that Johnny would just always be there meant that we didn't really get to see this relationship progress beyond the same notes of, I like you, I like you, work a couple. Oh, there's some jealousy and also I'm poor. Cycle, cycle, cycle. Mm-hmm. Until towards the third act. Yeah. I think it could have had just one scene without that might have been fine. Mm-hmm. That said, I really like Johnny as a character. Apart from him being a really good bully, there's levels of complexity to him that I think make him more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like, at one point, Kreese has some students do a practice fight, and one knocks the other down, and Kreese says, What are you looking at? Finish him! And then the student punches this guy while he's down. 
And we have a similar setup in the final fight where, because Kreese is all about this kind of no mercy, no weakness, if they're showing weakness, that means they should be defeated mentality. You know, Johnny's not super down with how underhanded Kreese is being. He wants to win, but he doesn't want to win underhandedly. He doesn't want to win against an opponent who has been hobbled, etc. And so there's a point where Daniel's down and uh, Johnny could finish him, as it were, but he doesn't. He keeps letting him get back up, so it becomes a fair fight again. And I appreciate that subtlety, although I also... It winds up breaking down over time because Johnny does wind up sweeping the leg and all that jazz. Yeah. There are shades of it that remind me a little bit of Bakugo from My Hero Academia. Like, he doesn't want to win against someone who's not performing at their best because it means that there's a little asterisk next to that win. This isn't a real win for me unless you try harder! They can't end this way! Now get up! Oh, for sure. I would 100% accept that Bakugo is a Johnny analog. So Midori is Daniel. Wow. Although it ties into what Maggie was saying. No such thing, uh, bad student, only bad teacher. And it's a really good exploration how these probably fairly similar kids kind of became different people through different teaching styles and how the film allows those two different teachers and their presence in the film to let there be a hint of tragedy to, to Johnny, which I think makes him a, a lot stronger as a character. Yeah, I wish we got a little bit more of an exploration of that. Like, you can see bits and pieces where they are trying to give Johnny more depth throughout the film. Mm-hmm. They weren't able to get enough screen time for him with everything else going on. And as much as I would have liked to see that, I also understand that there just wasn't enough time. And that was probably one of the better cuts. Yeah. Although I think if you needed to do that, if you made him less of a creeper when he's getting Alec to dance with him at the club, you could have showed why they started dating in the first place and what that attraction was. That might have let him be a more nuanced, soft character there. And you can still throw in the whole thing where he like where he kisses Ali and she slaps him without taking away from that. Mm. Then again, that would also pull it more into a love triangle space, and I'm not sure if the film needs that. I think if done well, that could have worked. However, I think the film is perfectly fine with Ali being like, "No, I I'm not a war. I'm I'm not a prize to be won." Mm-hmm. So I want to go back and touch on teachers. So we've talked a little bit about Kreese and his mentality and whatnot. I want to get into Miyagi a little bit because there are just so many moments of greatness coming from Miyagi for this film. Like when Miyagi enters the fight to rescue Daniel, how he just leaps over the fence. Miyagi, who is cribbing from Yoda when he is first introducing Daniel to what he'll be doing for lessons. Either you karate do yes or karate do no. You karate do guess so. Just like grip. Understand? And I think one of the crowning bits is where Daniel confronts him about the teaching and Miyagi walks him through, this is why you're doing what you're doing. This is how it's helping you. This is you know, the muscle memory that I'm teaching you. And the emotion both from Miyagi as well as Daniel is just really great in solidifying that teacher-student relationship. Hey, Always look Come back tomorrow. But I do like that Miyagi also learns a lot about himself in this process. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like Miyagi wouldn't have gotten out into the world as much if Daniel hadn't come into his life. It's very obvious to me that Miyagi has feelings for Daniel as kind of like a surrogate son. Figure. Yes. But the film doesn't directly like hit you over the head with There's not a like, you're like the son I never had moment. But Miyagi does keep referring to Daniel as Daniel's son, which is a standard naming convention thing. 
But because son sounds just enough like son that you could be free of him for messing up, you, he's almost saying Daniel's son, which winds up being kind of sweet, mm-hmm. even if it's just an accident. It's just a, a lucky cultural thing. Yeah. That whole surrogate-son relationship is bolstered by Miyagi sharing with Daniel the tragedy that he and his family went through. Mm-hmm. So that scene happens around when I wrote in my notes that this movie could be faster. I like it. There's also, it's a long thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you could theoretically cut the whole sequence where we learn about Miyagi's sad backstory. Mm-hmm. And the film would still work. But taking that time to dig into that and letting the film stop while we experience that sadness adds so much to the character that I wouldn't want them to cut it. Oh yeah, like the film would be totally functional without that scene, but the film would be so lessened by its absence. Mm-hmm. That said, I maintain that you could probably do this film in maybe 10 less minutes, maybe cutting one of the Ali Daniel Johnny cycles or just trimming a, a scene here and there. Mm-hmm. It's not bad, but this is not a film you can just sort of put in and watch uh, in a breezy way. This is not quite a popcorn flick. It's got too much emotional depth for that. And really, this might also be me trying to get through this and Blades of Glory in a night so I could get other stuff done and be ready for the podcast tonight, but also having to pause Karate Kid every 10 to 15 minutes to just think about masculinity and mentorship and the different things that are being presented and wanting to be better in my own life. So I guess, you know, (laughs) fuck you, Karate Kid, for making me feel feelings and think thoughts. I think that's a great place to end it for Karate Kid. As much as I would like to get into more, there is another film we need to talk about this week. That's true. Blades of Glory needs to be talked about. <laughs> so you can go in a lot of different directions with Blades of Glory, figuring out why this film. You can look at the Will Ferrell staple, which is kind of taking a well-trod film genre and then doing his own kind of Will Ferrell thing at it. Like Elf is a Christmas movie, but it's got Will Ferrell doing his Will Ferrell thing. Anchorman and Antigonites are kind of the same kind of thing. So this is a sports movie plus the Will Ferrell thing. I'm hesitant to call it a parody because more in the space of the sports comedy than the parody, but I think the glut of cheap, easy parodies is definitely part of what helped Will Ferrell be in the economically successful place he was in by the time this film was happening. Because by the time this film was happening he started being a producer writer for a lot of things basically credit where credit is due will ferrell has put his money behind a lot of things to make him happen and while i don't like a lot of his stuff i appreciate that he diversified his talent range and made sure that a lot of different people got to do things mm-hmm. you also look at it from an angle of the queer marriage debate and how all that was going which you suggested this because i guess you're the gay one now as we've established um i didn't even think of this i was just looking into snl who i become Anyway, Blades of Glory is 2007. While the gay marriage debate had been going on for about half a century at this point, in 2003, Massachusetts made same-sex marriage a thing that you could do for a little bit. And a lot of states made it a thing you could do for a little bit. And a lot of other legislatures were going, and no, 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 no. So there was about a decade where it was just this ongoing yes, no, yes, no for same-sex marriage in a lot of different places. A lot of places would make it legal until someone stopped them, or there'd be legislation that went through to make marriage officially just between one man and one woman. Over 2004 and 2006, 18 out of 19 states ratified one man, one woman rulings. Also, Arnold Schwarzenegger vetoed two different making same-sex marriage illegal bills. So one more reason that I'm never going to bother with watching the Terminator movies. But because of all this, gay marriage and how queer people fit into the traditional American lifestyle and what the place for queer people was and all that was now a forefront political issue instead of something that was just always going on, but 
was mostly something something AIDS, something something not like that around here. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it also specifically brought to the forefront of Americans who are not part of the queer community. Like, they now had to actually have an opinion on, is this something that we are going to deny these people? Or are these civil rights that we are going to fight for? Mm-hmm. And queer cinema wasn't much around this time at first. Because, I mean, like, Latter Days, Bug Crush. Now it's just happening. But then 2005 hits and we get the double whammy of Rent and Brokeback Mountain. The two opposite ends of the spectrum of queer film. Wow, yeah. Yeah. And while queer cinema wasn't necessarily in a great place, queers on TV were having a kind of a boom. This is the decade that gave us the first run of Queer Eye, the American reboot of Queer as Folk, the L Word was running with when this was all happening. I also got Noah's Ark and Dante's Cove, and queer characters were starting to exist in other things just sporadically. So while it wasn't necessarily part of big Hollywood, it was definitely part of the small screen personal conversation. Then we get to 2007, where we get, I guess, double whammy of Blades of Glory, and I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Oh, wow. Yeah, both two films interacting with American anxieties about homosexuality in, I guess, the best way that these people can. (laughs) These people being the straights. It's interesting to me, actually, given all of that, Blades of Glory doesn't really ever address things directly. Despite Will Ferrell's sex addiction and the male-male pair, the fact that it's taking place during the upswing of the gay marriage debate doesn't really factor into either the plot or even the line-by-line dialogue. Like, at one point, Charles Michael Michaels loudly proclaims that he's into women at one point. I'm a sex addict, and I'm attracted to women. That's not necessarily new for cinema. Like, and that's about all we really get, apart from the very thick subtext. As opposed to I Now Pronounce Jack and Larry, which maybe not necessarily a better film, per se, but it is one that is directly addressing these issues head-on, like a bull in a china shop. I read a review of that movie while I was looking this up. It described it as an insult to gay people, straight people, men, women, firefighters, insurance salesmen, and children. <laughs> Which is pretty comprehensive, honestly. So it makes perfect sense to me that Will Ferrell, who likes to be provocative in the most mainstream acceptable way, would do a narrative about queerness that doesn't really ever say anything about queerness directly. Also, just as an important sidebar, while doing this research, there is a film I hadn't heard of called Guys and Balls, which is oh dear about a gay man who's kicked off his high school soccer team so decides to assemble an entirely gay rogue squadron of gay soccer players to defeat all the other teams. And I need to watch that as soon as I can. That sounds terrible. I'm so excited. <laughs> That's on the rent end of the spectrum, where it's just some gay trash, (laughs) which is what I love. But speaking of gay trash, let's get into Blades of Glory. (laughs) Where would we like to begin? With Show Me the Orphans. (laughs) We've talked about how Blades of Glory is problematic. That's That's not a hot take. No. But there are lots of parts of Blades of Glory that hit that crosses the line twice comedy level that make me happy. Like, we're going to talk about how Jimmy's adopted father-ish, the man who adopted him, is this horrible, not-eugenics-y guy who's just trying to find children who he can mold into the perfect sports players, which gives us a great bit where there's a magazine that has him quoted as saying, show me the orphans, which is such a ridiculous villain moment that I kind of love it. It makes me understand that character in a very coherent way. Yeah. Honestly, I think that's one of the better bits of satire and trying to directly address an issue is 
the way it portrays Jimmy's adoptive father and the criticism it has of sports parents. Yeah, which I think is worth bringing up is still a running issue and that is so over the top and is mostly done by the first 10 minutes of the film is I think a good choice because it lets it get in there without having to unpack it more than the film was going to be able to do well. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to make this point and then we're going to move on to what this film's actually about. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about Jimmy Stalker? Uh... For those who haven't seen the film and don't remember our summary, part of the plot is that Jimmy has a obsessive stalker, like wants to wear him as a skin suit kind of stalker. He's the one who finds the loophole that they can compete in doubles, even though they've been banned from singles. Yeah, that's the one. And while I think he's gross and creeping over the top, he does have a great bit where he's like, It's embarrassing stalking a has-been, you know what I mean? <sighs> yeah, that joke is very good, but pretty much everything else involving the stalker is just not funny, kind of gross. And the film very much is trying to feminized Jimmy, the way Jimmy speaks, the way Jimmy dresses, and also specifically having it so that Jimmy is the one with a stalker. Mm -hmm. Chaz has groupies. Jimmy has a stalker. And it kind of plays into the subtext of gay relationships very prominently at this time. Which one of you wears the pants? Yeah. Which one of you drives? Which one knows astrology? I'm the one who drives, so astrology gaze hit me up. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, it is definitely a part of the feminizing of Jimmy, and also kind of it's a thing where it's funny because these are men, and it's funny if men are subject to predatory behavior. Whereas if it was a man stalking a woman, it wouldn't be funny. In general, I'm very not here for Jimmy Stalker, mm-hmm. but like you said, that one joke is actually really good, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he does at least have a place in the plot, which helps. I would much rather have him be someone who matters on a narrative level and just be, you know, therefore filling out the time and filling out the comedy. And there is a lot of good comedy in this. Like, I appreciate the running dynamic that Chaz and Jimmy have where Chaz will say something that is so ludicrous it's not even wrong, and Jimmy will react with bafflement. Try to correct some part of it, but Chaz will somehow one-up him. <laughs> like when he says, The night is a very dark time for me. It's dark for everyone, moron. Not for Alaskans or dudes with night vision goggles. <laughs> Which, the fact that it's such a fast comeback is so weird to me that Chaz, he's, he's right, technically, but he's still wrong somehow. It leads you to believe that Chaz has already gotten these pushbacks from other people before, and so he, these are his canned responses. There's also some really great physical comedy. The mascots for the games are terribly brutalized in, in this <laughs> film. One has a like fire stunt that looks actually really good. One is shot with a crossbow. Yeah. Really, the entirety of that chase scene between Will Arnett's character and Will Ferrell is so good. Will Arnett is stalking Will Ferrell with a crossbow throughout the arena. Yeah, it's great. It's so much fun. It goes to that wacky place that you really couldn't do in other films. Mm. But because this film is so over the top, you just accept it as part of this world. Yeah. Speaking of action, and this is going to be a really weird thing to notice, but we're going to talk about Jackie Chan again. Okay. So there's a bit where to demonstrate his masculinity, Jimmy does a slide across the ice wearing very little and Mm. slams into some boxes. If you freeze frame through that, which I did because... (laughs) Because I noticed something weird the first time and I had to check it. 
there's a cut frame. So Jimmy goes sliding, and then there's a cut frame when he has the impact. Then the next frame is him hitting the boxes, and it makes the impact seem faster. And then moments after that, we cut to a different angle of him hitting the boxes again, and that angle has a frame or two of him in motion before it hits the boxes. So your mind doesn't register this unless you're freeze-framing it or you're me, but so if you're just watching it, it looks like just a fairly solid impact that you see twice until your mind gets a fairly complete image of it, which is basically how Jackie Chan shot a lot of his fights. He would shoot a punch, then cut on the frame when the impact happens, cut to a different angle, we see two frames before the impact and the impact again. So your mind doesn't see two punches, it sees one punch that is continuous but feels very impactful because it's just hitting really hard. Mm. That also allows him to do stunts where neither is moving all that fast, but it seems to be moving really fast because of how the edits are happening, which is a really effective way to do fight scenes. And this is in contrast to a lot of American cinema where you have the frames leading up to the impact, then you cut to a different angle where the impact has already happened and you hear just a punch sound effect. Is why a lot of fights, especially in big budget stuff like the Avengers, don't feel real because they're not. They're just making you think that they are. Mm -hmm. And so it's baffling to me that this film is doing a better job with the physicality of its action than some of the MCU. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Will Ferrell has a great deal of tactical competence. Yeah. Although one place that I always constantly have criticism for Will Ferrell is his female love interests. Oh, terrible. He is always kind of playing this somewhat schlubby guy and always casts very, very attractive women to be into him. Mm -hmm. This film doesn't have it as much, although there is one scene that makes me think at some point there was a more extended love interest for Chaz and that just got cut for time or whatever. But when he is working as the mascot for that ice show, he is getting frisky with some of the other dancers and it looks like some sort of production assistant or like behind the scene person walks in on them and chews him out and wa walks away wanting nothing more to do with him. Haley, come on, babe. You knew this is how I rolled when you met me. No, when I met you, you were a great figure skater. Now you're getting stoned with the woodland fairies. I don't even know who you are anymore. It very much seems like that was a love interest that got cut for time. Mm -hmm. I say that because it follows all of the normal tropes associated with that in a Will Ferrell movie. It makes sense to cut his love interest because honestly, his main, I guess, love arc is Jimmy, kind of. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not explicitly romantic or sexual, but him learning to love Jimmy as something kind of like a brother, as, as a pack mate, as part of the pack, is his main arc. I will grant you that it is not explicitly sexual. It kind of is implicitly sexual, though. Yeah. There's even a bit of the end where Katie's making out with Jimmy. She's like, You've been practicing. And Jimmy's like, Just taught me some stuff. And Katie has this look of, You know what? No, not gonna ask any more questions. It's fine. Yeah, that combined with when we were first introduced to Ch Chaz Michael Michael's tattoos, one represents him, and then all of the others represent his sexual conquests. Then at the end of the film, he gets a tattoo that represents Jimmy. Yep. And listen, I love the trope where two characters have to pretend to be dating or whatever for a ruse, for a scheme. And then by the end of the, end of the narrative, they realize they actually have feelings for each other. And then it goes from, from ruse to reality. And I feel like Katie is there to create a no homo for this mm -hmm. film. Like She has other parts of the plot, but... Her primary role is to leave room for heterosexuality between these two characters, mm -hmm. because otherwise you have an actually really satisfying love story in there between two men. 
a male male love story there. <laughs> and I'm not saying this should be like held up as a shining pinnacle of queer representation or anything, but it's weird how well it would work better as that. Mm-hmm. The whole like tattoos thing is it leads to so many questions when Chaz asks, and like, "What about you? You got any tats?" And Jimmy just responds, "I had my face painted at the Blueberry Festival one year." I don't know what that means. (laughs) And like in a sex way? Yeah, like just, I got my face painted at the Blueberry Festival. Juxtaposed next to, oh, these tattoos are explicit references to sexual conquest. It's like, your mind goes places. It's like that recurring bit in Game of Thrones where Tyrion keeps talking about- I once walked into a brothel (laughs) with a honeycomb and a jackass. And you're not entirely sure what's going on there. You're not sure if you want to know more, but you know there's a story there. Yeah. I'm hesitant to praise Josh Heater, given that he's like a vocal Mitt Romney supporter and all that jazz. But I do really appreciate the scene where Jimmy talks about the reason that he is so passionate about skating is because... Out there, I feel like I can do anything. It's, it's the only place where life makes sense. And I get that. That's actually a really cohesive explanation for why this sport in particular. Why not <laughs> other things? And for someone who's been controlled his entire life by his terrible adopted person, I don't want to call him a dad, the idea he's able to find some freedom is actually pretty solid. I, I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I think it's about time for extra innings. Well, I guess, yes. <laughs> so who's got a better training gimmick? Obviously, the karate kid. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps the most iconic training gimmick of them all. Yes. And Karate Kid also definitely wins for best montage. Yes. And MVP does not work this week. Not really. I mean, you could argue that Miyagi, Ali, and Danny are a team. Yeah. So I will just put forward Ali for MVP for <laughs> for calling Danny on his shit on the regular. <laughs> Something mm-hmm. that more love interest in 80s movies need to do. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. And then I guess if we're going to go MVP for Blades of Glory, honestly, I think I'm going to give it to Katie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For pretty much the same reason. Pretty much, yeah. Although my MVP extra is there's another skater standing watching the final match when the coach realizes they're going for the Iron Lotus and says, no, no, don't do it. It's suicide. And he has this look of like, all right, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Then that means I won't win. I have a better chance then. (laughs) Which... I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. There's some good face journey happening there. All right. That means we are down to our final vote. <laughs> I don't think it's going to surprise anyone that Karate Kid is moving forward. Karate Kid is moving forward. Blades of Glory had a really fortunate matchup in round one. But I, I think this episode solidifies that there are parts of that that we do appreciate. There are some interesting things that the film is doing. I hesitate to outright recommend it to watch. I actually will. There are people who are probably going to be more sensitive to some of the, the jokes and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's If that's not your bag, I totally get that. And honestly, even if you're not into Will Ferrell movies, I think analyzing this as a piece of cinema that is interacting with queer history is at least worth taking a look at. Figuring out why this is the way it is mm-hmm. is interesting and kind of isn't the worst idea. And honestly, there are some good jokes in there. There are some, mm-hmm. some good acting bits and some good fight scenes. Some good fire stunts. (laughs) Yeah, this movie has a crossbow. Yeah. I mean, Karate Kid doesn't have a crossbow. (laughs) So, next week, we are going to finish off round two of our bracket with our last two female-led films. We have 2006's Stick It, as well as 2002's Blue Crush. Mm -hmm. Very punk energy coming off of next week. Very punk energy. 
And if you want to be there for that punk energy, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.